the beautiful and palatial UltimateSportsTalk.com radio studios on a rainy and blustery summer day in the middle of the state of Ohio. Good evening, everyone. I'm Dave Mitchell. Welcome to the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. We stop by and talk to you each and every week about the world of sports, and boy, there's a lot going on tonight. I'm Dave Mitchell. So glad to have you along this evening. If you want to send us a tweet or send us an email, my email address is bmitch at ultimatesportstalk.com. And my Twitter address is at ohbbcohost, ohbbcohost. That's my Twitter address. Feel free to send us an email or a tweet about anything you'd like me to talk about here this evening on the show. But we've got a lot going on. Might as well start singing We Are the Champions because the USA women's soccer team has won the World Cup, the first time since 1999. We're going to talk about all of that coming up along with free agency has begun and ended in the NBA as another season gets ready to begin in October. Lots of football action going on, NASCAR, and of course, Major League Baseball's All-Star Game. But first... It's a big day around the city of Cleveland because the Cleveland Cavaliers and LeBron James have reached agreement on a new deal. James is going to sign a two-year deal with the team with a player option for a second year. The first year will be for $22.97 million with the second year at $24 million. Now, the reason he opted out of his contract was because James, just by doing that, could gain himself a $1.6 million raise this year. And the reason that he's going for a two-year deal with a player option after this season is because if he opts out, then the new CBA will go into effect, the new TV contracts will go into effect, and LeBron could conceivably make anywhere from 26 to $28 million a year. And you know what else this tells me? This tells me that Tristan Thompson is close to signing with the Cavaliers also because LeBron's agent, Rich Paul, is also Thompson's agent. And LeBron would have never signed a contract with the Cavaliers until Thompson was taken care of. He wanted to wait until everyone was set. The Cavaliers also announced today that Kevin Love is in the fold. He kept his word and came back to the Cavaliers. And it was all because of the poolside chat that he had with James that convinced him to jump back in with the Cavs. LeBron said he wasn't going to do any recruiting. Well, that went about two days, didn't it? Love said today that he and James had a very honest talk before free agency opened, and the discussion led him to re-signing with the Cavs, a team he hopes to help win an NBA championship. The Love-James relationship was constantly analyzed last season as the Cavs tried to mesh new players under first-year coach David Blatt. Also, the Cavaliers announced, that they have officially re-signed shooting guard Iman Shumpert, reportedly for four years at $40 million. That's 10 mil a year. Shumpert appeared in 62 games, 25 of them starts for the Cavs and the Knicks in the 2014-15 regular season. He averaged 8 points, 3.6 rebounds, 2.2 assists, and 1.3 steals in 25 minutes per game. In 38 games for the Cavs, he averaged 9.1 points per game, and five rebounds a contest. Now, the question is, when will Tristan Thompson actually sign, and where does J.R. Smith 
fall into what this team wants to do. Also, another signing the Cavs announced today, Mo Williams is coming back to the team. He's signing a two-year deal worth $4.3 million. He'll take up that backup point guard spot that is held right now by one of the big three, Kyrie Irving. You know, I remember a movie that came out about, oh, I think it was about 13 or 14 years ago right now, and it had Tom Cruise in it. And the movie was called Jerry Maguire. Do you remember that movie? Jerry Maguire was an agent. And he had a quarterback that was supposed to be the number one pick in the NFL draft that year. It was Frank Cushman was the name of the quarterback. Cush was the guy. He was the man that year that was going to be the number one pick. And he was going to make Jerry Maguire's life easy as pie. He was going to be on Easy Street being this guy's agent. Well, the night of the draft, he found out that Cushman had signed with another agent. He betrayed him the night before the draft and caused him to lose almost everything to the point where Tom Cruise lost his job, was left to only one player, and that was Cuba Gooding Jr., and he ended up finding the love of his life. Well, the same thing practically happened to the Dallas Mavericks last night. And I just simply cannot believe what a clown DeAndre Jordan is turning out to be in this fiasco with the Los Angeles Clippers and the Dallas Mavericks. Jordan agreed to a four-year, $80 million deal with the Dallas Mavericks last Friday. Gave his word. Walked out of the office with Mark Cuban and Rick Carlisle and said, I want to come play for the Dallas Mavericks. I don't like Chris Paul. I don't like the way that he leads this team. I want out of L.A. and I want to come back to my home state of Texas and play for the Mavericks. He wanted to leave the Clippers. But there was one sticking point. That contract could not be signed until midnight today. That's when the NBA's free agency moratorium lifted. And at 12.01 today, what did Jordan do? Did he put his name on the dotted line for the Dallas Mavericks to say that I want to play with Dirk Nowitzki and Wes Matthews, who's a new free agent coming in, and be a part of an organization that is run by one of the most progressive owners in the NBA and Mark Cuban? Oh, heck no. What did he do? He signed a four-year, $87 million deal to go back to the Los Angeles Clippers and have the headaches that he had before, as he was saying they were, with point guard Chris Paul. CBS Sports' Matt Moore explains perhaps the biggest double cross in NBA free agent history. DeAndre Jordan has fingers crossed behind his back the whole time. After an absolutely ridiculous, insane, completely crazy day, during the NBA offseason, as word surfaced early on Wednesday morning and followed throughout the day as things got more crazy and more crazy, that DeAndre Jordan was considering breaking his verbal agreement with the Dallas Mavericks on a four-year max contract to return to the Los Angeles Clippers. The Clippers arranged for a meeting at Jordan's home in Houston, and at that meeting on Wednesday night, after convincing Jordan to stay with them and re-sign, the Clippers did not leave his house. They stayed there, vowing to stay there until he signed at 12.01 a.m. 
Eastern Thursday morning. Some might call that a hostage situation. In reality, they were hanging out playing cards and playing video games, but it was clear the Clippers were not going to mess around with a, this opportunity that they've been given as a second chance to get Jordan back in the fold. Uh, meanwhile, it's an absolutely devastating development for the Dallas Mavericks, who now have $20 million in cap space, but most of the other free agents are locked into verbal agreements. Will they all break their deals and have domino effects? Will one of them break off and sign with the Mavericks after reconsidering with max money available? Will Mark Cuban just go completely crazy and start blowing things up because that's what he does? Cuban had said that the Mavericks were going to have to rebuild if they didn't get Jordan. They didn't get Jordan. We'll have to see what the fallout is there. This saves the Clippers from falling into obscurity. It keeps them as title contenders. This is going to have massive ramifications on the moratorium and how business is conducted in free agency, on what's allowed in terms of tampering, what a verbal agreement really means. All of these things are going to be up in the air and will probably be impacted by this situation that unfolded in, honestly, pretty hilarious fashion on NBA Twitter throughout the day Wednesday. The only thing that I can think of that comes even close to this situation is when Carlos Boozer left the Cleveland Cavaliers. He went into then-owner Gordon Gunn's office and said, I want a new contract, rip up my old one, give me a new one, and I will sign it and stay with the Cavaliers. What happened? Gordon Gunn took him at his word, ripped up the contract, and immediately he had another deal set with the Utah Jazz, signed that deal, and left Gordon Gunn sitting there with that ripped-up contract in his lap. That's the only other time I've heard of anything happening, such as what DeAndre Jordan did last night to the Dallas Mavericks. So you've got to sit back and you've got to ask yourself the question, what is the integrity level of DeAndre Jordan? Evidently, if you put it on a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being the lowest integrity, he's got to be at a negative 5 right now. So just what happened to the Mavericks? Jordan just disappeared. He vanished. He was gone into thin air. The Mavericks were unable to talk to him after last Friday when Jordan walked out of the office in a meeting with Cuban and Carlisle and said, yep, I want to come play for the Dallas Mavericks. They were unable to reach him. Couldn't talk to him for the better part of this week following that verbal agreement. The Mavericks had built their entire free agency plan around Jordan. They let Tyson Chandler go to Phoenix, knowing that Jordan was a step up on Chandler in age and ability. And they didn't make any efforts to get Roy Hibbert out of Indiana. He went to the Los Angeles Lakers. Now, had they known what Jordan was going to do last week, they could have made an effort to get Hibbert. They could have tried to keep Tyson Chandler from going to Phoenix. They didn't go after another big man. Now they have a huge hole, like a donut in the morning, in the middle. When Jordan expressed doubt in his decision to sign with Dallas, his former L.A. teammates pounced on him like a mouse on cheese. Prominent members of the Clippers organization, including owner Steve Ballmer, Coach Doc Rivers, Blake Griffin, Chris Paul, and Paul Pierce, all came to Jordan's home in Houston and shut out the rest of the world until a deal was in place. J.J. Redick 
should probably be the GM of the year because everybody is giving him credit. He actually drove to Texas, a two-day drive, drove to Texas to start this hostage situation, as you heard Matt Moore talk about it, and keep DeAndre Jordan with the Clippers. You know, when LeBron James recruits somebody to come into the Cavaliers, they call it unfair. J.J. Reddick doing it, he gets GM of the year. I don't understand it. Now, see, I don't blame the Clippers. Don't get me wrong. The Clippers did what they had to do. I, I hold no animosity towards the Clippers. They did what they needed to do. I blame Jordan and his lack of integrity. Never once did he or his agent let the Mavericks know or Mark Cuban know what was going on. They didn't even let them know that he was having second thoughts. They didn't even let him know, didn't even give Cuban or the Mavericks organization the common courtesy of what he was thinking. He didn't even pick up the phone and say, hey, guys, you know, I'm thinking maybe the Clippers situation isn't as bad. Maybe I kind of exaggerated what was going on with Chris Paul. Never gave them the opportunity to come back and answer the questions that he may have had about the Mavericks situation. Now, I have an issue with Jordan breaking his word, but there's no mechanism in place and probably will never be to prevent Jordan from doing what he did. It was his right. You might have an issue with the Clippers, who essentially sieged Jordan's home for 24 hours, awaiting the end of the moratorium. It appears Jordan was the one to initiate contact with his former team. So again, while it may look sketchy, the Clippers acted in the best interest of their franchise and reclaimed one of the biggest pieces of their team. Now, do I think DeAndre Jordan is actually worth four years at $87 million? No, not at all. I don't think he was worth four years at $80 million. Quite honestly, Tristan Thompson, I think, is a better ball player than DeAndre Jordan. If Tristan Thompson played as many minutes as DeAndre Jordan did, he would lead the league in rebounding also. Because Tristan Thompson is only four rebounds a game behind DeAndre Jordan as far as what he does on the floor, and he plays ten less minutes a game. So, no, I don't blame the Clippers. I don't blame the Mavericks. I have no issue there, but Jordan's actions paint the entire Clippers organization in a horrible color, something they really didn't need just over a year away from the Donald Sterling incident. Watching the past 24 hours unfold has just been an entire joke and a black eye on the entire NBA, something that they have to look at. They really have to take a look at this because fans right now look at players not only in the NBA, but in Major League Baseball, in the NFL, all over. They look at the players as greedy, selfish, spoiled, hard-headed. Now you can add unprofessional to the list. A thing that DeAndre Jordan is going to be lumped in with. Going back on his word, it was completely unprofessional. Should have never done it. Running and hiding was cowardly. He should have stood up like a man and told Mark Cuban, what he was thinking, even if he had to sneak into the TV show Shark Tank and say, hey, Mark, got a problem here, thinking about going back to the 
going back to the Clippers. What do you want me to do? This whole situation was a bad one. And the sad thing is that most of it would have been rectified with just a simple phone call by Jordan to the Mavericks. Elsewhere in the NBA, after being traded four different times this offseason, Luke Ridenour finally will have a chance to choose for himself where he'd like to play next year. The Toronto Raptors waived Ridenour on Thursday. Today, the same day they officially announced that forward Damari Carroll had signed a multi-year contract. Ridenour's trade to the Raptors was the fourth time he was traded in the past week. The 34-year-old guard has a fully non-guaranteed contract for the next season, which made him a very tradable asset, which is exactly what the Cleveland Cavaliers have in Brendan Haywood and that $10.5 million contract, non-guaranteed. That's why the Cavaliers got him, kept him on the roster the entire year, and now he has a very valuable asset for the Cavaliers, much like Ridenour was, and you're going to see Brendan Haywood go through the same thing that Ridenour is now, being a free agent and looking for work, but still bringing in the money. Glad to have you along tonight. You're listening to the Ultimate Sports Talk Show on UltimateSportsTalk.com. I am Dave Mitchell. Well, you can break out the chant, we are the champions, because Carly Lloyd scored twice in the first five minutes on the way to the fastest hat trick in World Cup women's soccer history. And the United States made the margin stand up, defeating Japan on Sunday night 5-2 to two to win the 2015 Women's World Cup. With the victory, the American women avenged their 2011 World Cup Finals loss to Japan, a game they lost on penalty kicks. And the U.S. now has won three Women's World Cup championships, more than any other country, and the team set a record with 112 goals in the tournament. Lloyd, a 32-year-old midfielder who scored the winning goals in the 2008 and 2012 Olympic Finals, received the golden ball as player of the tournament, the seven goals combined were a new record for a championship match. Julie Foudy and the ESPN crew discussed the win by the USA and what prompted their amazing start to the game. The emotions first, that, that first few minutes, I, I, I said, oh my gosh, this, what a great start. I had no idea. This is after two minutes. I had no idea after 15 minutes the U.S. would have four goals and 16 minutes. I mean, I, I don't know what Carly Lloyd had for her pregame meal, but I want that for the rest <laughs> of my life, whatever she was eating. And that was the U.S. team that you just love to see. They were committed. They were fighting. They were in it. I mean, what a performance. I'm I just so pleased that they not only won, but they won in the fashion they did. The U.S. had been creating chances. They just hadn't been putting them, putting them away. It seemed like they just couldn't miss. The formation change we talked about a lot against Germany, where they switched into five in the midfield, and what that does is it pushes Carly Lloyd higher, and it pushes Megan Rapinoe higher. So you're seeing it right away, and that's what the game plan for the United States was. They saw that that Japan struggled against England, so they came at them, and they came at them hard, and they pressed, and they got forward, and then set pieces. We knew that the, that Japan had a weakness with set pieces, and the USA just good enough early on to capitalize. And if you flash back four years ago, it was the early missed chances that the United States players constantly refer to. They said, look, that's not going to happen again in 2015. 
And honestly, this is a U.S. team that's just been waiting to explode. It just, you knew it was in there, and that was the frustrating thing at the beginning of this tournament. You can hear the roar from the stadium behind us. I mean, that was such a fantastic atmosphere in itself. But you knew it was in this team, and you were just waiting for it to come out. And so I actually credit the U.S. having that commitment to go forward and take risks early on that won it for them. And that was the mentality we were waiting to see. Jules. Besides Carly Lloyd, who else out there you thought was a big reason why the United States started so strong? Oh, gosh. Um, I, I actually thought Holiday and Morgan Bryan and that three in the middle, right? That, that was a key for me this tournament is getting that right. When they switched into that five midfield and you sat Morgan and you sat Holiday, and all of a sudden that midfield started to come together, I think that was important. I, so I liked – how, and I liked how they started with such energy. I mean, what, one of the things we knew against Japan is they didn't want to be pressed. They didn't want to get physical. And what does the U.S. do immediately, Kate? They come out of the gates, as we've been talking about all tournament. come out of the gates, and they started pressing them. Kate, what were your emotions uh, opening 20 minutes? Well, first it was like, what's going on? Like, wh what happened to Japan? Did they not show up? Are they like, this is not the Japanese team that we've seen that are so calm and composed under pressure. But then it was pure jubilation. I don't think there's a bit, been a major World Cup or Olympic tournament where the United States has dominated and played really well and won the game and consistently through multiple games. And that's two or three games now where the United States is not only running teams over and showing that mentality and what has always made us great. Now they're solving in pressure and winning games by playing well, you know, evolving with the game both tactically, tactically and technically, and that's what I'm happy about. All that stuff is great. But you have to point the finger at Japan at some point because they were still on the bus. 16 minutes in, they were still on the bus. They didn't realize what was going on. And yes, it is the pressure of the United States. But Japan, come on now. Absolutely. World Cup final, not ready to play. And you have to point the finger directly at the head coach of Japan. Because one thing is on the players on the field. But you're, as a coach, it's your job to have that team ready to go. And they were not ready to go. And that was evident, right? Because the one defender that really struggled, that was the reason why... Carly Lloyd was untested in those runs in the box and gave up that horrible clearance that allowed Lauren Holiday to shoot was Iwashimizu. She came out in the first half. When does a coach in a World Cup ever sub out a player with, you know, 30 minutes into a game? That never happens, and that was a sign of how disappointed he was in her. But I agree. I don't know what Sasaki did today to motivate his team, but it wasn't enough. Meanwhile, Julie, I think it's fair to say Carly Lloyd will never have to buy a drink for the rest of her life. For those who've maybe just started following women's soccer during this tournament, tell us about Carly Lloyd. Well, the, the thing that has so impressed me about Carly, too, is look at the beginning of the tournament, and, and we talked often about how that midfield was struggling, right? And Carly Lloyd and Lauren Holiday, chances down, shots on goal down. All their numbers were down from past tournaments. And you knew how good those two were together in the midfield. So I think the real freeing move for her came when all of a sudden the ball and chain came off and Coach Ellis said, look, I'm going to put, and it happens because Holiday's out, I'm going to put Morgan Bryan in the holy midfield spot against China, and I'm going to move, move Carly Lloyd up. And all of a sudden it was like the chains are off, she's unleashed, and you literally saw what Carly Lloyd could do. Because you know in big moments, look at 2008 Olympics, which Kate knows well, she was on the team then. Carly Lloyd gets the game winner. 2012 Olympics, she stores two goals to beat Japan. So this is a player you knew should be producing more, and that switch by Jill Ellis to get her higher up the field paid off in huge dividends. On the other hand, it was not just the offensive end that led the women to the crown. It was the defense throughout the entire tournament. Get this. The United States didn't allow a goal 
in 539 minutes of World Cup play. That translates into the equivalent of almost six normal 90-minute games of shutout soccer. With this win, the United States has more women's World Cup titles than any other country, and Sunday's final was the most viewed soccer game in United States history. And when it comes to money, though, the ladies fall far short. According to reports, the average salary in the United States, Men's Soccer League, the Major League Soccer League, is 305000 For women, the average salary is just 14000 No gender equality there. As for the prize money, the total for the Men's FIFA World Cup is $576 million, while it's about $15 million for the women, according to Business Insider. Last year, the United States men's national soccer team, which failed in its bid to make it to the finals of the World Cup, was paid $9 million in prize money, according to Reuters. The American women, the 2015 World Cup champions, will earn $2 million, according to Business Insider. Nonetheless, gender equality and all, no monetary comparison between the two, the women win the World Cup FIFA Soccer Championship. You're listening to the Ultimate Sports Talk Show here on UltimateSportsTalk.com. I'm Dave Mitchell, and moving on to golf, world number one player and defending champion Rory McIlroy will miss next week's British Open after injuring his left ankle. The Northern Irishman, age 26, revealed on Monday he had ruptured an ankle ligament playing football with friends, and on Wednesday he confirmed he would not compete at St. Andrews as he posted a photo on Instagram and said that he's taking a long-term view of the injury. Alex Perry, the ESPN golf analyst, talks about McElroy missing the tournament. It's a crushing blow for, for everyone over here who, uh, not only the people that have tickets to go to St. Andrews and want to see the best players in the world, but for us that get to go there and, and write about it. Uh, it's It was... You can't blame a guy for, for wanting to have a kick around with his mate. Uh, you know, if he was bungee jumping or skiing or something, then maybe you'd say, well, you know, that was, that was a bit silly to do that. But he's kicking a football around with his friends. You know, it was an unfortunate accident. Uh, it's just devastating that we're not going to have, you know, the world's best player at the home of golf next week. The 2015 British Open begins on the 16th of July. That's a week from today. And tournament organizers said they were... Naturally very disappointed at McElroy's withdrawal. McElroy, who has won four majors, could also miss a chance to defend his U.S. PGA Championship title in mid-August. Hey, the All-Star Game is going to be up on Tuesday night as the American League and National League will vie for home field advantage in this year's World Series, as always. And balloting is underway through 4 o'clock tomorrow in the Esurance Major League Baseball All-Star Game final vote, which is a four-day blitz in which the unique campaign alliances will form. Digital balloting records will probably fall, and fans will decide the 34th and final roster spots for the 86th Midsummer Classic on Tuesday night in Cincinnati at Great American Ballpark. The National League candidates for the final five presented by manager Bruce Bochy include Reds right-hander Johnny Cueto, who I don't even understand why he didn't make the original roster, Mets closer Jerice Familia, Dodgers left-hander Clayton Kershaw, 
Cardinals right-hander Carlos Martinez and Rockies shortstop Troy Tulowitzki. In the American League, candidates presented by manager Ned Yost include Red Sox shortstop Xander Bogarts, Tigers outfielder Yanis Cespedes, who deserved to be on the original roster also, Twins second baseman Brian Dozier, Yankees outfielder Brett Gardner, and Royals third baseman Mike Moustakas. Well, the American League Central leading Kansas City Royals will be without Alex Gordon for at least eight weeks after the all-star outfielder sustained a severe groin strain while tracking down a fly ball last night against Tampa Bay. Gordon, who was on crutches after the game but will not need surgery, has a grade 2-plus strain and will not participate in any baseball activities for several weeks, according to his manager, Ned Yost. Gordon crumpled to the field near the warning track in the fourth inning of Wednesday night's win over the Rays and laid there for several minutes, eventually needing a cart to leave the field, and then later he underwent an MRI, and that's when the damage was disclosed. Yost is unsure if Gordon will be able to return before the end of the regular season, and he probably will miss the playoffs if he doesn't come back before the regular season is over. Outfielder Justin Upton is day-to-day for the San Diego Padres with oblique soreness. The National League All-Star missed Wednesday's 5-2 loss to the Pittsburgh Pirates. He felt soreness in his side in a weekend series against the St. Louis Cardinals and then re-aggravated the injury Tuesday night against the Pirates. Murphy said Upton is not expected to go on the disabled list. The Padres have three games remaining before the All-Star break. National center fielder Denard Spann will be sidelined through the All-Star break because of lingering back spasms. The leadoff hitter won't play in any of Washington's remaining three games, and he won't play at Baltimore this weekend. Spann had an MRI this week, and the specialist will examine the results today, manager Matt Williams said. For now, Spann will not be put on the disabled list. He is batting 305 with a team-high 11 stolen bases. And when Major League Baseball descends on Cincinnati for the All-Star Game Tuesday night, Pete Rose will be there along with everyone else. The Major League Baseball executives have given Rose their blessing to be on the field at Great American Ballpark for Tuesday's pregame festivities. Why? Well, because it's going to put money in the pockets of Major League Baseball. That's why it's going to bring more people out in Cincinnati. Major League Baseball fans have been voting all season long for their Franchise Four, which determines the best four players in a franchise's history. Now, Rose, along with Johnny Bench, Barry Larkin, and Joe Morgan, won the Reds' voting. And the results for all 30 teams will be revealed prior to the All-Star Game on Tuesday. That's why Pete Rose will be involved in the All-Star festivities. And don't forget to join us on Monday night for the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Mark Donahue and I will be on at 9 o'clock here on Ultimate Sports Talk to bring you all the interesting information this All-Star Week between the Cincinnati Reds and the Cleveland Indians. That's Monday night at 9 o'clock on the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Now it's time to take a look at the standings for Major League Baseball as we head into this final weekend prior to the All-Star break next week in Cincinnati. And let's start out with the National League, because they have the team with the best record in baseball. And as a matter of fact, in the National League Central, they have two teams, the only two teams in Major League Baseball, with 50 wins. The top team, the St. Louis Cardinals, they're 55-30. and 30. They're four and a half games in front of 
the Pittsburgh Pirates, who are 50 and 34. The Pirates have won five in a row and eight of their last ten, but they're still four and a half games behind St. Louis. The Cubs are in third place at 46 and 38. Then comes Cincinnati at 38 and 44. They're 15 and a half games out. Milwaukee is in the basement at 37 and 50. In the National League East, Washington at 46 and 38 is three games in front of the New York Mets at 44 and 42. Atlanta, just a game under 500 at 42 and 43, or four and a half games out. Miami is 11 and a half games back of Washington. And then comes Philadelphia. They've run up the white flag. They are 29 and 58, 18 and a half games behind the first place Nationals. Out in the National League West, the L.A. Dodgers continue to extend their lead. They are five games up on the San Francisco Giants. The Dodgers are 48 and 38. San Francisco in second place and even 543 and 43. Arizona, meanwhile, they've won seven of their last ten. They're 42 and 42 on the year, and they're five games behind the Dodgers. Then come the San Diego Padres at 39 and 48. They're nine and a half games back behind the Dodgers. And come the Colorado Rockies in the basement, 35 and 49. They are 12 games back, and they are losers of two straight. Now in the American League, let's check out the American League Central. First of all, where the Kansas City Royals are on top by four and a half games. They've won four straight, five of their last ten, but they're 49 and 33. Four and a half games up on the Minnesota Twins, who continue to hang in there. The Twins are in second place at 46 and 39, and they've won three in a row. But they're still four and a half games behind the Royals. Then come the Tigers, seven games back. The Tigers just continue to play Good baseball for about three games, and then bad baseball for about three games. The Tigers are 43-41, and 41, seven games out. They're trying to revamp their entire bullpen. I don't know if you heard or not, but the Tigers dropped Jabba Chamberlain. The Cleveland Indians are in fourth place in the division. They're 40-44, and 44, ten games out, but they've won seven of their last ten and two straight. And the Chicago White Sox hold up the basement. They are 11 games back at 38-44. and 44. In the American League East, the New York Yankees are 45 and 39, and who would have thunk it? But the Yankees are in first place this late into the season, just prior to the All Star break. They're two and a half games up on the Baltimore Orioles, the prohibitive favorite to win the division early in the year. They're 43 and 42, and they are rumored to be in the chase for Johnny Cueto should the Reds decide to trade him. But the Orioles have lost three straight. Toronto. They are 44-43. and 43. They're also two and a half games behind the Yankees in the East. Tampa Bay, who was just leading this division about two weeks ago, now are three and a half games back because they've dropped nine of ten and three in a row. They're 43-44. and 44. And then Boston is in the basement, but they've won four straight. The Red Sox are 41-45 and 45 on the year, five games out of first place in the East, and they open up a series with the first-place New York Yankees this weekend. As far as what's happening out in the American League West, well, it's the Houston Astros continuing to lead the way in the West. They are 49-38. and 38. They've won six of their last ten, but they've lost two in a row to the Cleveland Indians heading into their game tonight at Progressive Field. The Angels out of Los Angeles, 46-38. and 38. They're a game and a half back, but they've won five in a row and nine of their last ten. Texas is in third at 41-44. and 44. They are seven games back. And they've lost five in a row. 
The Seattle Mariners, they just cannot seem to get anything going as far as their season is concerned. They're 39-46, and 46, nine games out, and then comes Oakland, ten games out, and they are in the basement of the American League West. Now, here's a look at the wild card standings. Let's go ahead and start taking a look at that as we get closer to the final two months of the baseball season. Washington, St. Louis, and the Dodgers all lead their division. So the two wild card teams right now are Pittsburgh and the Chicago Cubs, both out of the Central Division in the National League. But teams right behind them nipping on the Cubs' heels, the New York Mets at three games out, the San Francisco Giants four games out, Arizona also four games out, Atlanta's four and a half games out of the last wild card spot, and then Cincinnati is seven games out of the last wild card spot. As far as the American League is concerned, the Yankees, Kansas City, and Houston lead their divisions. The two wild card teams right now are the LA Angels and the Minnesota Twins. But then come these teams. The Detroit Tigers are two and a half games back. Baltimore and Toronto, three games out. Tampa Bay, four games out. Texas, five out. Boston, five and a half out. Cleveland, five and a half out. And the Chicago White Sox are six and a half games out. That's a look at the standings for this week on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. And there are three series that you need to keep an eye on this weekend as far as Major League Baseball is concerned. Starting out, a first-place battle in the National League Central. The St. Louis Cardinals are in Pittsburgh taking on the Pirates. And like I said earlier, this is a battle of the only two teams in Major League Baseball that have won 50 games so far this year. The Cardinals 55, the Pirates 50. The Chicago White Sox will just go cross town, and they'll be at Wrigley Field taking on the Chicago Cubs in a three-game set this weekend. And then finally, the Washington Nationals play an interleague contest against the Baltimore Orioles at Camden Yards this weekend. And that's a look at what's happening around Major League Baseball for this week. Well, if you needed to even know that you shouldn't do this, after you hear the top two stories in the NFL this week, you're going to know don't play with firecrackers on the 4th of July. Don't play with firecrackers anytime for crying out loud. But a couple of NFL stars, well, whether they thought they were invincible or whatever they thought, they are now on the injured list. And it starts out in New York with Giants defensive end Jason Pierre-Paul, who had his right index finger amputated yesterday. Medical records show the procedure took place on Wednesday afternoon. Pierre-Paul discussed his options with his medical team and family members, according to a source, and decided that the amputation was the best decision for his health and his career going forward. ESPN's Dan Graziano spoke with Darinoka about the latest from the Jason Pierre-Paul fireworks incident. Well, there are a lot of concerns. You know, he's been treated for, obviously, the, the fractured thumb. Uh, the amputated index finger, and there were also burns that have been treated, as I understand it, with skin grafts. So there, uh, there's a lot of healing still to be done. Um, now, I'm told the recovery time on the thumb, which is the longest of the recovery times, is about six weeks, and that would get him on the practice field earliest, uh, August 19th, 20th, there, about second week of the preseason. It's important to remember 
Pierre Paul hasn't practiced in the new defense yet. They hired Steve Spagnuolo as the new defensive coordinator. Pierre Paul missed all of OTAs and minicamp in that contract dispute, so he has yet to be on the practice field and learn the new scheme, which is a little bit different from what he's been playing in the last few years. So even if he's healed physically in six weeks, which is kind of a big if given the extent of those injuries, uh, he still has a lot of work to do before he gets up to speed in the defense, and quite frankly, he's going to have to learn how to play with his hand in the shape it is in now, because, I mean, you know, he, he, the amputation, as I understand it, was something he chose to do because he felt it, it offered the clearest path back to a normal life and a playing career. However, you know, his hand is different now than it was, and he's going to have to learn what adjustments he has to make in order to perform at a high level uh, if, he is, if he's able to do that going forward. Dan, there's also a matter of business here. How is uh, the amputation, the fracture, affecting the Giants' thought process on their one-year franchise tender here? You know, as I understand it, there's no real consideration now to revoking the franchise tender. I think they're going to go forward with it, but there are a lot of, you know, procedural issues. If he signs the franchise tender, they can put him on the non-football injury list, which would allow them to to basically not pay him if they don't want to uh, for games he doesn't play. If he doesn't sign the tender, they can't put him on the non-football injury list at the start of camp, and then he has some degree of control over when he comes back. You know, say he signs that tender two weeks into training camp, three weeks into training camp, when he has some sense of when he's going to be able to be back on the field, then he might have some greater control over that. I think what happens is once things settle down and calm down and he's out of the hospital and able to talk to them again, the two sides probably end up coming to some sort of arrangement on, hey, how much are you going to be able to play? How much is it, is it fair to pay you within the framework of that franchise deal? Those conversations are for down the road. Again, young man is still in the hospital, just had uh, several significant surgeries, so I think there can be time uh, before they sort all that out. I can't see the NFL and the Giants especially, walking away from Pierre Paul. But then again, stranger things have happened in that league. One source characterized the timeline for Pierre Paul's return as being sooner than people think, and he said he's still expected to play this year. But the incident brings another nasty problem to the forefront. It's a little law called HIPAA. Now, if you're not sure what HIPAA is, it stands for Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. See, Adam Schefter of ESPN attached a photo of Pierre Paul's medical records to his tweet about the amputation. And that is a clear violation of the HIPAA law, which is supposed to keep medical records confidential. Now, people have expressed their concerns over the past couple of days about ESPN's decision to publish that image, yet ESPN claims it has no such concerns. It states HIPAA does not apply to news organizations. As it stands, the person who passed along the information to Schefter is actually the violator of the HIPAA law, not technically Schefter nor ESPN, who are not healthcare providers, and again, technically not covered entities under HIPAA. But state privacy laws could apply. Still, public opinion in many remain confused by the unnecessary effort to validate an accurate report that nobody would have really seriously doubted. And again, ESPN is proving to everyone that they are just a tabloid network, not one with journalism ethics. And again, another 
incident in the NFL with a firecracker. Tampa Bay Buccaneers cornerback C.J. Wilson lost two fingers in a fireworks accident last weekend. Wilson's agent, Joel Turner, declined to discuss specifics of the injury and referred all further questions about Wilson's situation to the Buccaneers. And then the Buccaneers confirmed the accident in a statement to multiple outlets yesterday afternoon. No word yet on any recovery time that it will take Wilson to come back. Commissioner Roger Goodell is in Sun Valley for a fancy tech media conference, and he told a CNBC reporter there that he expects the NFL to issue a ruling on Deflategate very soon, perhaps even next week. Goodell was spotted walking with Patriots owner Robert Kraft around Sun Valley, which prompted everybody to wonder if maybe they were talking about what kind of punishment to give Tom Brady in his suspension and appeal. And really, it's starting to look like Brady, who was suspended for the first four games of the season due to Deflategate, will actually play in week one. Now, why am I saying that? Because it's very simple. This decision is taking so long for Goodell to make, if he hasn't already made it, by the way, that if it does drag into next week, a probable lawsuit will be starting to get into motion about the time that the preseason will start, which means Brady and the NFL should be fully embroiled in a max controversy about the time that the season starts. So Brady will play in the opening game, the league will get their ratings, and everyone wins. And just remember, with the NFL, it's all about the ratings, and it's all about the money. Out West, when linebacker Chris Borland signed a four-year contract after being drafted last year by the San Francisco 49ers, he received a fully guaranteed total of $617,000 as his signing bonus. The only way he would not be able to keep the money was if he retired before fulfilling the four-year commitment. And that's exactly what Borland did. As a result, Borland had to return three-quarters of his signing bonus to the 49ers. Borland said he retired due to concerns over his long-term health, not only with head trauma, but he's also battled shoulder injuries since his college career at Wisconsin. Borland said the one aspect of his decision that seems to stick with people the most is the money aspect. In addition to the large sum of money that he returned, Borland was scheduled to make $530,000 in base pay this year. Borland told the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel last week at the 2015 Legends of Wisconsin Golf Classic, people just can't get over the money. While his former teammates are experiencing their final weeks of downtime before reporting to training camp, Borland says he's planning a trip to Europe and has not decided on his post-football career path. A judge ruled in favor of opponents in the Washington Redskins name Wednesday after hearing arguments from both sides in district court. Washington filed a lawsuit in August to contest the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office decision to remove the trademark registration on the team's name because it deemed the name offensive to a large number of Native Americans. Washington owner Dan Snyder mounted a stalwart defense in the name, vowing to never change it. But he may have to strongly reconsider that position now. He could face pressure from the NFL's 31 other franchises, who may also take a financial hit due to the league's revenue-sharing system. Snyder could still appeal to a higher court, 
And given his proclivity to like to get into a fight, that seems like the likely outcome. Now, by now, most of you have seen the video that shows Florida State freshman quarterback DeAndre Johnson punching a woman in the face at a Tallahassee club last month. The footage was released Monday and has since gone viral with almost a million views on YouTube. Initially, the incident led to battery charges and Johnson's suspension from the team, but once the video got out and the backlash ensued, Florida State announced late on Monday that Florida's former Mr. Football, a top FSU recruit, had been dismissed from the team permanently. To me, this is just showing morality a little too late for Florida State University. This is the type of incident that could have been stopped if FSU and the Tallahassee police had shown some backbone and initiative and done their job in the Jameis Winston incidents at school. Had the university put standards ahead of wins and losses, maybe Johnson would have known he couldn't get away with this type of act. Instead, by seeing how FSU and the Tallahassee police handled Winston in his many altercations, Johnson may have gotten the idea that he was safe, that he would be sheltered by those who sheltered Winston. But Johnson forgot one thing. He hadn't won a game yet at FSU. See, the university has shown that the more games you win, the more you can get away with. Winston proved that. Johnson just made his mistakes too early. Well, if you're an Ohio State Buckeye fan, some welcome news earlier today. Ohio State quarterback Braxton Miller said that he is coming back to Ohio State, and that is 100% assured. He said he heard from plenty of schools that wanted to have him as their signal caller, but he never really entertained the possibility of a transfer. Today, in the Columbus Dispatch, Miller repledged his allegiance to Buckeye Land and talked about the quarterback competition with J.T. Barrett and Cardell Jones. According to Miller, he not only reaffirmed his commitment to the Buckeyes, but to the pursuit of being the team's starting quarterback, though the Columbus Dispatch described it specifically as his initial goal. Miller mentions some version of the phrase, be smart, several times, given the long recovery and rehab from two shoulder surgeries. It sounds like Miller's health is a top priority for everyone involved. He claims to have regained strength in that shoulder and does not suffer from any pain, only citing some rotation issues and the last bit of rehab left, but that's going to come by throwing the ball every day. Miller's self-diagnosis will be put to the test when the Buckeyes open fall camp, but at least as of this update, it puts any transfer rumors to rest for good. Urban Meyer has said that the three quarterbacks with varying levels of health and experience will now get to see just how this competition, arguably the biggest story in college football this August, plays out. Ohio State is the favorite to reach the college football playoffs after this upcoming regular season. The Buckeyes are the defending national champions, as I am proud to say, and have three experienced quarterbacks returning to a team that appears to be loaded. There are four spots to be handed out and 128 teams on the FBS level. Even if we eliminate teams from outside the Power Five conferences, that still leaves us with 65 teams, and that includes Notre Dame. So the odds increase, but they're still not great. 
So after Ohio State, the favorites to reach the Final Four are Alabama, Auburn, and Baylor. And on the outside looking in to start are Clemson, Florida State, Michigan State, and LSU. You're listening to the Ultimate Sports Talk show here on UltimateSportsTalk.com. I'm Dave Mitchell, and Chad Mendez and Connor McGregor are fighting this Saturday night for the UFC interim featherweight title. Both are 17-2-0 in their professional careers. So this sets the stage for an interesting, fairly even matchup in the headline event of UFC 189 at the MGM Grand Arena in Las Vegas. McGregor was supposed to fight Jose Aldo in this card, but Aldo had to back out due to injury, which was confusing. It confused everyone, including UFC owner and president Dana White, and McGregor was also confused. Neither one of them believed the injury, especially since Aldo was medically cleared to fight. White thinks Aldo balked out due to his weight. But yesterday, McGregor discussed facing Chad Mendez and not going up against Jose Aldo. It is what it is. You cannot force a man who was afraid to step in there and fight. You must... I must accept it. You know, it's not it's not the best uh, thing for me. I did want to. I, I we we put a lot of work into it. He should have manned up and, and stepped in and fought. You know, he he talked the talk, but ultimately he did not walk the walk. But it's a bittersweet feeling because now we have an opponent who people have said uh, will be my kryptonite, the American wrestler. That is a style that people believe is is a style I cannot uh, overcome. So um, I look forward to going into the octagon and proving uh, a point here dominating this fight and raising the gold belt. So it's interesting because, as we just mentioned, different styles between Aldo and Mendez. When UFC said, okay, next up for you is Mendez, did you initially resist wanting to fight him because it was such a different type of fight? I was actually in bed at the time having a little midday nap. My coach uh, walked into the room and uh, told me of the opponent change. I opened one eye. I said, they are all the same. And then that was it. I closed my eyes and went back to sleep. You know, this is this is the way I approach the game. Since I, as long as I've been in this game, I've had people running from me, pulling out of contests left and right. Even before I signed with the UFC. You know, also on the card on Saturday night in a rematch of their fight at UFC 167, Rory McDonald will face Robbie Lawler, and we all know who Robbie Lawler is, and that will be the top of the undercard. McDonald is the favorite this time around, despite losing to Lawler in their meeting back in 2013 by split decision. Glad to have you along tonight on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. I'm Dave Mitchell here on UltimateSportsTalk.com. By now you've heard the story about Jared Fogle and Subway. He's been the speaker for Subway for the last 10 years, but he's run into some legal problems. And NASCAR driver Carl Edwards said there's no reason to even speculate on the situation involving Jared Fogle until all the facts are gathered. Edwards has been a longtime promoter of the sandwich chain that sponsors his number 19 Toyota Camry. He also has appeared in some way ads with Fogle, who became famous for losing 245 pounds by eating its sandwiches. The ex-director of a foundation Fogle created to fight childhood obesity was arrested in May on child pornography charges. Authorities raided Fogel's suburban Indianapolis home on Tuesday, but he hasn't been charged with any crime, and his attorney says he is cooperating with authorities. 
Edwards said yesterday at Kentucky Speedway that out of respect for Jared and the judicial process, he thinks it's very important to wait until there are some facts coming in before he ever says a word. Right now, the NASCAR standings in the Sprint Cup Series, Kevin Harvick leads the way by three points over Dale Earnhardt Jr. Jimmy Johnson is in third place, then comes Joey Logano, and Martin Truex Jr. is in fourth place. And this week, the race is going to be in Kentucky, and that race will be the Quaker Stake 400, held at the Kentucky Speedway. It will be held Saturday night, and it, you can see it all on NBC. And the final story on tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show, ESPN is not renewing Keith Olbermann's contract, and I am saddened by this. His contract expired at the end of the month anyway. Priya Desai reports on Olbermann leaving the network for a second time. For the second time in his career, Keith Olbermann will be leaving ESPN. Rumors over negotiation breakdowns were reported last week. On Wednesday, James Andrew Miller, author of the ESPN tell-all book, Those Guys Have All the Fun, reported that Olbermann and ESPN could not come to terms on a new contract. ESPN issued a statement Wednesday saying, Keith is a tremendous talent who has consistently done timely, entertaining, and thought-provoking work since returning to ESPN. While the show's content was distinctive and extremely high quality, we ultimately made a business decision to move in another direction. Olbermann began his ESPN career in 1992 on SportsCenter, but left in 1997 amid an apparent rift between himself and management. After making stops at MSNBC, Fox Sports, and CNN, he returned to the mothership, though his show is taped at a Times Square studio in New York. His contract was set to expire at the end of July. There were a couple of problems with this show that really hampered Olbermann and the ESPN executives. The first one was the network execs floated the idea of having Olbermann take his show to the network's headquarters in Bristol or go to their Los Angeles facility rather than keep doing it from the ABC News Times Square studio in New York that ESPN leases for him. Now that move alone would apparently had saved ESPN $40 million at a time when the sports leader is feeling a financial pinch from its Disney corporate parents. ESPN president John Skipper has been given a mandate to cut $100 million from the network's budget next year and $250 million in 2017. Maybe what they ought to do is just cut out the ESPYs. ESPN also has abandoned a previously announced plan to have ESPN radio program Mike and Mike move to the same New York studio where Olbermann is produced. Now, the news follows a THR report on July 1st noting that ESPN management also floated an ultimately unworkable caveat that Olbermann cease engaging in commentary. Now, one of the reasons you want to watch that show is his commentary. It's stinging and funny, but always comes at you with a point. ESPN, though, has gotten to the point where they cannot handle commentary because it might sting the hand that feeds it, either the sponsors or corporate giants like the NFL or the NBA. This ultimately is what's wrong with television journalism today, especially on ESPN. No bite and a lot of bark. 
And that's it for tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Thanks for joining us this evening. So glad you came along. Hope you enjoyed tonight's show. Don't forget, on Monday night at 9 o'clock, it's the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Mark Donahue and I talking about the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds just the night before the All-Star Game. And let's see what kind of ovation Pete Rose will get. That's coming up Monday night here on UltimateSportsTalk.com at 9 o'clock. Well, our thanks to Greg Mitchell for producing tonight's show, but most of all, our thanks go out to you for listening. Next Thursday night, I'll be back with another Ultimate Sports Talk show at 7 o'clock. Be sure to join us then. Until then, enjoy your weekend, everyone, and enjoy the All-Star Game on Tuesday night. I'm Dave Mitchell. Until next Thursday at 7, have a good week, everybody. Good night. Good night.